1938, the first comic book about Superman was published. You know Superman. I mean, lots of jokes are made about Superman's undies being on the wrong side of his pants. But uh, Superman uh, was someone who was born on the planet Krypton. The planet Krypton kind of blew up. But just before it blew up, his mum and dad sent him in a capsule and he landed in, the, uh, in a rural area of the US. And as he grows up um, from uh, being a child, he uh, learns that he has all these special superpowers. And it becomes pretty clear, uh, if you've uh, seen a movie about Superman, that he's, he is very powerful and he is very strong and he's basically indestructible. Uh, anything can come at Superman and the big idea about Superman is he just doesn't die. Uh, he beats the bad guys and he just doesn't die. But he has one weakness. And that weakness is kryptonite. Now, you bring a stick of kryptonite along to uh, Superman and it becomes a whole different story. Superman becomes weak as water. He becomes not able even to stand up. It's as if the external pressures and trouble can come Superman's way and he can fend those off. But once something comes and breaks him down on the inside, he's kind of done for. He's, he's fair game. And uh, what we're actually going to see today as we look at the next section in James is we're actually going to see uh, a similar thing. Last week I looked at, uh, in our time together, I looked at the way that external pressures can come and try us. Uh, and they do try us. Um, and, and sometimes, uh, perhaps most of the time for many of you, you, you kind of could look at it and go, it's, it's easier to handle an external trial. But once the external trial gets on the inside, oh, that becomes a whole other story. Uh, it becomes far, far more difficult once it gets on the inside. We can kind of retain our strength against the external one, but when it gets inside, we start to melt. James is interested in you doing well, not just with external trials, but also with internal trials. And so he continues in James chapter 1 um, and, and addresses the whole issue of internal trials. So if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love for you to open them, turn them on, press the button and go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 starting at verse 12 today. be really good and if you uh, open that up and you're able to keep that open in front of you that's that's what we're going to be working through today um, James chapter 1 verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures." All right, here's where we're going today. Today we're going to look at the nature of humanity, the nature of temptation, and the nature of God. Pretty straightforward. So let's kick in. Uh, we're looking at verses 13 to 14 there, the nature of humanity. Let me just lay it out for you. Uh, people who have been in the project for a while know we just kind of like to tell the truth and tell it straight. So here's the truth. 
Humanity loves to blame God for failing. I should just say humanity blames God for failing. And humanity is solely responsible for how they handle temptation. That's what James wants you to know. All right. Let's be honest for a bit. Can we, can we do this? Can we all just be honest and say we have a little bit of a problem with blaming our environment for the things that we do? Is anyone with me on that? We, we do just have a bit of a problem. We don't like to take responsibility for what we did wrong because then it shows that we're bad people and who wants to be a bad person? You know, and even sometimes, even if we can partially admit that we did something wrong, there is a human tendency, isn't there, to just kind of say, well, there was some kind of uh, uh, mitigating circumstances here that made things really difficult for me. And when it all comes down to it, I think uh, when you look at it, there basically when you fail, there's four people or things that you can blame. You could blame something in creation, Right? Now, before I go to that, let me just take one step further. Um, some of us, I think maturity is to be able to acknowledge your faults. And I think many of us are able to do that. So what I'm actually talking about here is all of those times where we don't want to acknowledge our responsibility for something and admit that we did something wrong. Uh, so what I've done there is I've put a red cross on uh, blaming ourselves because uh, I'm picking on those moments where, that James talks about where we don't take the responsibility ourselves. What are your other three options? Once you've knocked out yourself, what are your other three options? Well, one of them is uh, something in creation. Um, I used to play against my father in tennis, right? And we were just way too competitive, right? Way, like seriously, way too competitive. The moment of walking back in the house, if you were the victor, that was a very, very sweet moment, right? Usually the vanquished, the one who just got thumped, was just be, they'd just be quiet and someone would quietly say, how did the game of tennis go, right? Um, because it was a big thing to win. I think too big a thing to win. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I used to do is I used to blame my context. I used to blame my environment. I used to blame the created world, right? Because I used to have like a smoke and serve. Okay, it sounds terrible to say that. I'm just getting old, right? But I had like a legend serve and but my serve depended on there not being a whole lot of wind. So what are your chances in Toowoomba of being able to get a good toss without the wind blowing it around? So what would happen? We'd come home, Peter's lost. What happened? It was the wind. It was against me. I didn't play bad tennis. It was the wind, right? And then there was a night, you know, that we, Dad and I were just playing tennis out at USQ and some young uh, university students did what, a lot of young university students kind of might think about, and some of them do, and they, they drove past and threw eggs at us. Right? It was like, well, it was the uni students. They put me off. I, I lost my concentration. There was something that kind of went on there. There was something that conspired against me. We can blame uh, the created world to some extent. We can blame other people. You may be someone who gets really angry. Seriously, like your life is okay. It's just all these other idiots that just keep wrecking it all the time. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like, man, can we just, if I could just get rid of them, I'd be okay. So maybe there's a tendency for you, you kind of go, I don't really blame my environment that much in terms of the created world, but I'll blame other people. Your other option that you've got there is to blame God. 
Now, we're just a little bit hesitant on this one. Because um, you heard the saying, right? You just don't want to poke the bear. You don't want to poke the bear. It's like I say to my, my sons, it's like, don't wake up the tiger, right? Because they come and they start sparring with me in a bit. And like, you wake up the tiger and you're going to get a tiger. That's how it works. These are the options for us, aren't they, uh, in terms of what we do when we get something wrong. Where are we going to apportion the blame? You know, one of the interesting things about um, these options here, when it's not yourself, is just about all of these options involve you playing a kind of victim in the midst of it. And, and how do we do this? How, how do we actually pass the blame on to other people? Well, we make excuses up, don't we? You know, I, I think there's something genuine that goes on in the heart of us that says we got something wrong and it's not good to stay in a wrong place. We need to get to a good place um, and excuses and self-justification are the way that we do it. They're often the way that we do it. You know, if you look in the New Testament, the uh, concept of justification means a public declaration of righteousness. So it's kind of like a courtroom where a judge publicly declares that you're a good person. So what do we do when we make excuses and try to self-justify? We are trying to make for ourselves a public statement about our goodness and our righteousness. That's what we're doing. That's what excuses and self-justification does. You know, sometimes it can, uh, this can take on the shape of scapegoating. And that term scapegoating actually comes from Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. What's, what goes on there? Well, what goes on there is they bring a goat in. The priest confesses the sins of the people on the head of the goat and sends the goat into the wilderness. Now, think about scapegoating and the way that we use it in, uh, in our culture. It's very similar, isn't it? Like, I did something wrong, but I'm going to put the sin on that person's head and then I'm going to send them away because they're a bad person. You know, this kind of stuff can happen in the church too, right? Can't it? It, it can happen in the church. Um, I tell you, someone said to me a number of years back, and it was in the context of uh, me working in the church, they said, you know what people do in the church often is they take their problems and they make them yours. I went, ah, oh, I think I might have seen that a few times. I think I might have seen it a few times. Now, we're not perfect as a church. We don't get everything right, and I certainly am not perfect, and I'm sure it wouldn't take you long to find something that's wrong with me. But there's a bit of truth in this. That's kind of what we do, right? We take what is our responsibility and something that's going on for us, and we kind of put it on someone else. Why do we do this? Because we have to get back to being on the right side of the line, don't we? Don't you feel that? It's like I've just got to get back. We scramble. You know, sometimes um, people ask me, they go, oh, how's the project going? And uh, this is one of my answers. I say, well, it's uh, filled with sinners and it's led by sinners. So uh, on all accounts, it's going pretty well. Because <laughs> there's complications that, that go along with it. You know, we, we do things to just kind of mess things up. And there's a, a drive inside of us that we just have to get back somehow. It's just that the ways that we use don't work particularly well. And I think this, is, this kind of direction, this kind of clambering that's going on is what we see in James chapter 1. 
the people are failing a test, they're falling into temptation and they're saying, it's God's fault. And this is, this is the kicker, right? If you look at this uh, graphic up on the screen and you go, I don't really blame God, I'll blame kind of creation and other people. Well, do you know something? <laughs> they all, if you follow the trail, end back up at blaming God. That's where it ends up. Um, maybe uh, if you've got your Bibles there, go to Genesis 3 with me for a minute. This is the fall of humanity. God set the garden up. He set it up, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in it, and the tree of life, and the instruction is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve go and eat it. And then you see this clamoring going on about how are we going to get out of this situation we're in. We need to get back on the good side of the line. How do we get there? Go down to verse 11 in Genesis chapter 3. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, (laughs) The woman who you gave to me. Now, I'm going to read a little bit more there, so just just keep it open and keep your finger in it. Um, I I read this and I go, Adam, are you sure that you want to do this? Like, you just straight up, you're going to take on God and just point the finger at him and say that he did the wrong thing? Uh. Let's keep reading. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Which serpent would that be? Uh, The one that God led in the garden, presumably. You know, you see this pattern throughout history. I mean, you go to, uh, let me read you a section. This This is a great section out of Exodus 16, right? Maybe flick over there, Exodus 16. The uh, people of Israel have been miraculously brought out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. Uh, This is really worth reading. Exodus 16, verse 2, and then I'm going to read 6 to to 8. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Who did they grumble against? Moses and Aaron. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, this is verse 6, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against who? (laughs) Against the Lord. It's like, hang on, I thought they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Well, no, they weren't. They were grumbling against the Lord. For For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Listen to this last line. This is the freaky one. It's really freaking. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see how it tracks its way back. When you blame, when you grumble, all of this stuff just tracks its way back to an ultimate grumble against God. Why? Because God made other people and he's sovereign over them and he should do something about it. And he's not doing anything about it. God made creation. He should make creation work for me so that I don't have to fail. And we get to James chapter 1 and it's like God should 
stop me from falling into temptation. It's his fault. He should have done something about it. God is not really, hear this, he's not really a good person. He is not a good person. If he is, then he would have done something to help me. What's James saying? It's your fault. Not his fault. He didn't do anything wrong. You're responsible. And so every single time, and this is the hard truth, and we'll get to something a little more pleasant in a minute, but every time that you fall into temptation and you fail, it's your fault. And this is what James is saying. It's your fault, and our tendency is to blame God. So I just encourage you, don't blame God. Take responsibility. When you do something wrong, it's your fault. Number two, the nature of temptation. Have a look at verse 14 and 15 there. This is awesome. James is really helpful for us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, what's the context for this temptation that James is talking about? Well, the context is suffering and it's trouble. It's trials. It's external stuff that kind of comes your way. And here's, here's the reality. I think this is one of the things that James is saying. When you have an external trial come your way, usually that's going to set up an internal temptation. You see that? External pressure comes, there's an internal temptation. Let me give you a few. Here are some linked temptations to these situations. If you don't have enough money, and that's the trial that's coming at you, there's going to be a temptation to distrust God and to want to control things. There'll be a temptation to be dishonest, to get ahead. There'll be a temptation when you have money to hoard it so that you have enough and you don't have to depend or trust in God. There'll be a temptation to not be generous when you get money. What about this one? What about the, when the external trial of being unfairly treated comes your way? Well, what's the temptation? Well, there's lots of temptations here, right? You could just act in ways that God doesn't want you to act. Who here, like, just be honest with me for a second. I'll just set this up and then we'll have a show of hands. Who here has ever been frustrated that you've been in a situation that's unfair and the bad guys don't follow the rules and you feel like you have to? Has anyone ever been in that situation? Be honest. I have. So this is just not fair. And what's the temptation in that? Well, I'm going to break the rules. I'm not going to do what God says because this is getting out of hand. Snipe when you can. Vigilante anger. Side swipes. These are the temptations that could come in an unfair situation. What about broken relationships? You see, that, that's an external situation, but the internal temptation could be bitterness. It could be unforgiveness. It could be gossip. It could be revenge. What about this one? A long, hard battle. I've been in a long, hard battle. I'll tell you, this, there are going to be some moments where you just think it's going to be okay for you to indulge in some stuff that God says not to indulge in. You know, you just go, this has been, this has been really crap. And I'd, it's, it's okay. People are going to be able to understand if I just drink too much or I click on something online that I shouldn't click on. It's been a hard time. 
Now, we can think that we can reward ourselves with that. We can just head wherever we need to head to escape to get out of it and, and kind of check out of what God's actually called us to. Giving in even. I, I think giving in to despair is a great temptation in the midst of a long, hard battle. What about this one? What kind of temptations come when um, you have the test of a fearful possibility? Oh, there's something out there. It's like that thing could go really, really badly for me. What's the temptation when a test comes like that? Ungodly anxiety. You get to work controlling the situation. Giving up and freezing in the middle of it. And for some of us, I just plain putting our cranky pants on. I don't like this fearful situation. We get cranky about it. There are temptations that come our way that are linked to the external trials that we face. And James is really helpful for us here because he actually lays out for us the process of how temptation works. Uh, And as the title of this message says, the anatomy of temptation. So here's how it works. Let's go. The first bit, which he says, temptation starts with this, uh, desire. It all starts with desire. Now, I don't think James is talking about evil desire at this point. I think he's just talking about natural desire. There are evil desires, and Scripture talks about those, but I don't think that's what James is talking about here. He's going to talk in uh, James chapter 4 again about desire, and in, in the same way, it's, it, I think it's desire that actually isn't evil at this point in time. You know, if you are hungry... It's not evil to desire food or coffee. It's, it's not, some of us are like going coffee, like when you're hungry. Yeah, like for some of us, that's a meal, right? It's not wrong when, you're, when you don't have enough money to desire to have more money. It's not wrong when you're tired to desire to rest. And in my view, this is the critical fail in the whole, the whole Buddhist thing, to be honest, is they say suffering comes from unfulfilled desires, so you have to get rid of desires. And I, I kind of say, well, good luck with that, right? And then it gets weird because you go, okay, so you've got to have a desire to get rid of desires. So how do you get rid of the desire to get rid of desires? And so I can then I just, I just get confused. I want you to hear something from me this morning. Most of the trouble that happens in your life doesn't actually come from evil desires. It comes from normal desires that get blown up too big. They just get too large. The, uh, the word that theologians have used to describe that in the past is inordinate. Inordinate desires. An inordinate desire is a di- desire that is unusually or excessively great. And this is what happens with desires. They start innocent and then they get too big. And the key, and I want you to hear this, the key to stopping in temptation, and James is going to tell you how the whole temptation process works, the key to stopping is right here, right? Is you just got to get out and you got to get out quick, all right? Uh, can you flip in your uh, Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 7? The scripture is clear. You just, when it comes to temptation, run like the house is on fire. 
That's, that's what Scripture's about, right? Don't hang around. Don't loiter. Don't even pause for a minute. If you've got a natural desire and you can see something coming, you just have to run like the house is on fire. Proverbs chapter 7. Look at verse 6 to 9. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple. I perceived among the youths. If you're a youth, hear this. A young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her. Who's, who's her? The forbidden woman, the adulteress with smooth words. If you go back a few verses. Along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. You see what's going on? He's just loitering around, just hanging around. Right? Which is why the scriptures say so clearly, you just got to get out of there. Don't loiter, right? Because what happens when you loiter is the very next step in James's process. What is it? Something connects and joins between your desires and sin and you've actually got conception at that point in time. You should have resisted the temptation but you welcomed it and in welcoming it, sin and, and, and the, uh, your, your natural desires somehow joined and do you know what they did? They produced offspring. Go back to James. James chapter four, uh, James chapter one there. They produce offspring. Do you see that? Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. You've loved something too much and you wanted it in the wrong way. You've been deceived by it. And you're hooked. Now, what's the metaphor that James is using here? He's using a fishing metaphor. There's bait on a hook. The temptation comes along. You don't run from it at the start. The the desire conceives. And then the fish is on the hook. And what does a fish on a hook do? Whatever the fisherman decides to do. Unless it can get off, but that's not the point that James actually makes here. He says it's over at this point. Once desire has become attached to sin and it's become evil desire because it's too big, it's pretty much all over. So get in your head the, the vision of this, that sounds terrible, this poor fish, right? Thought it was getting dinner and now it's on the hook and it has to do whatever the fisherman says and it gets dragged that's what James is saying here getting dragged along so I wonder geez, just even at this point in time where do you loiter that that is the pinch point right there that's the really important point in some ways once the conceptions happen you you're on the downhill slope at that point in time you're you're Best chance of getting out is at the desire stage. So don't loiter. You know, one of the realities about sin is we choose and choose and choose until what we choose starts choosing us. And and we get stuck at that point. Well, how do you know when a desire has gotten... Or become inordinate. 
it's become too big. Well, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Um, you can actually see the evidence in, uh, in sin. This is the way uh, Dave Powlison puts it. How can you know if a desire is inordinate? By their fruits you know them. Human motivation is not a theoretical mystery. There is no need to engage in introspective archaeological digs. Evil desires produce bad fruits that can be seen, heard and felt. For example, a father who wants his child to grow up to become a Christian reveals the status of that desire by whether he is a good father or a manipulative, fearful, angry, suspicious father. In a good father, the desire is subordinate to God's will that he love his child. In a sinful father, the desire rules and produces moral and emotional chaos. Similarly, a wife who wants to be loved reveals the status of that desire by whether or not she loves and respects her husband. Visible fruit reveals whether God rules or lust rules. That would be a good definition of what an inordinate desire is, is when it becomes a ruling desire for you. It's no longer something that you want anymore that would be nice but it's like I have to have this thing and I am going to uh, organize my life around getting that so we go from desire to conception to sin this one's straightforward Uh, conceptions happen and now it's given birth to sin and we're doing bad things we're doing evil things things. Uh, I think you can see this uh, in the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve get tested and they, they loiter. Eve loiters. And, and what's the loitering? Well, the interesting thing is that when the devil is questioning Eve and she should have run like the house was on fire and not even talked to the devil. That's what she should have done. But she's having this conversation and uh, the devil says, did God really say this? And what does Eve reply with? Eve replies with this. Um, she replies that God said we can't even touch it. We can't even touch the tree. Now, now that would be wise not to touch a tree that you're not meant to eat from. But God never said anything about touching. You see, at that point in time, you can see, I think you can see a bit of conception going on. And, and what actually happens after that is they eat the fruit. Evil acts. And then... What happens next? Uh, death. <laughs> That's what happens. And I think uh, James is talking ultimately about um, spiritual. I, th- I think we see that there's physical death. It's a result of sin. Um, and it's an amazingly, um, it's an amazing wordplay that James uses. Uh, you see, um, desire when it is conceived, so that's pregnancy, gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to, which is kind of the same terminology, death. It's the exact opposite of what you'd expect. They give birth to death. But that's the way that this process, process works. There's, there's reproduction going on here. There's children and there's grandchildren. The children are sin. The grandchildren are death. And you can see that in Adam and Eve. But I think we can also see it in the... Uh, in the temporal things of life, can't we? Like you just decide to get after whatever it is that you lust after, not just sexual things, and you can expect that you're just going to be scattering a whole bunch of death around the place. You decide that you're going to be selfish. 
and watch the people around you get tempted to be selfish themselves and before long everyone's getting selfish. What's the, um, what's the test of humility? The test of humility is when someone comes along who's really proud and arrogant around you. Because what's the temptation when someone's proud and arrogant? You're not better than me. I'm better than you. And all of a sudden, we're just throwing death around willy-nilly. And we wonder why community suffers in the middle of that. Are you okay? Does this make sense? Now, let's get to the good news, but I have to, have to wrestle with something with you first, okay? Because uh, there's some tricky things here. Uh, when it comes to the nature of God. Have a look at verse 13 to 18 in James chapter 1. James wants you to know that God is never to blame for you blowing it. And you know what he's keen for you to know? He wants you to know that God is not that kind of person. He just isn't that kind of person. Now, if you look at that, that text in, uh, I'm not going to read all of it, James 1 verse 13 to 18. What you'll hit there is you'll hit a couple of things you just go, oh, hang, like how does that connect with these other things? Like it says there in verse 13 that God cannot be tempted by evil and yet Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. It's like, well, what is that? And, and then you see uh, in verse 13 that God doesn't tempt or test anyone. It's the same uh, Greek word as earlier in the chapter. And you go, hang on, I thought James just actually talked about testing going on. And Peter talked last week about how God brings tests our way to mature us. And then you kind of go through the rest of the Bible, you go, hang on, I can think of heaps of times where God actually tests his people. Um, and then you kind of, this was my kind of thinking process, and you go, well, hang on, if you go to James chapter 2, James talks about Abraham's test, you know, where God told him to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. So James must know that God tests people. So what is he saying when he's saying that um, God never tests anyone? What's he saying that, that Jesus, that, that God can, it cannot be tempted by evil? How do we understand it? Well, John Piper has been very helpful to me this week in just clarifying this. It's been a great wrestle this week to work through this. Um, and, and here's where it leaves us, I think. There is a kind of test that God does and a kind that he doesn't do. That's the first one. And there's a kind of temptation that God experiences and a kind that he doesn't. I want you to stop for a moment and look up on the screen if you're, if you're not looking at it because there's actually two arguments going through the, uh, the first 18 verses of James. Notice this. You see this? This is actually what we did last week. James, in the first part, is saying you've got tested faith. That's where it starts. Your faith gets tested. Then you have steadfastness and endurance. Then you get mature and you get life in the end. That's verse 12. You see that? Remember that from last week? And then this week, what's he saying? He goes, there is another process that can be at work as well. And it's a different process. It's desire that leads to conception, that leads to sin, that leads to death. So on a very simple level, which, which train do you want to get on? Well, it's obvious, right? You want to get on the, the life train. Yeah, like let's all have that. 
Can you see what he's doing here? These are pathways that lead to life and death. And he's showing how the pathway and the process of temptation actually leads to death. So here's the question. In what sense can God be tempted and in what sense can't he? Now here's, here's the bottom line. Jesus has, and when he was in his physical body on earth, he had natural desires and allurements. He got hungry. But here's the catch. Jesus can... Jesus never crossed the line from desire to evil desire and acts of sin. It never actually got conceived for him. So here's kind of the big idea. Jesus stopped somewhere in there, (laughs) in between desire and conception. Jesus can be tempted in the realm of desire, but it can never reach the point of conception. There's never any positive agency by Jesus in things being conceived in him. What's the bottom line? Well, you just can't successfully tempt God. He's never going to go to the other end of that temptation flowchart. He might want to fulfill a desire, but he never wants to do evil. And graphically, it looks like what I've shown you up there. And in the same way, God will never, ever test you he will put a test out right but he'll never ever take you over that line to conception never and I want to even suggest to you I don't think anyone can take you over that line to conception because who's the only person who can do that you (laughs) you I mean no one can be made to sin everyone who falls into temptation who falls into sin does it off their own bat. That's all us. Here's another way to think about it. I'm going to wrap up soon. Here's another way to think about it. Think about the kind of testing that went on in the Garden of Eden. God put a tree in there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of that. Now, some people who want to be crit- critical of God would just say, that's not right. It's not right for you to do that. You're tempting them to sin. But no, he's not. He's testing them. That's what he's doing. Because you grow by doing tests and passing tests. But that wasn't the only kind of test that was going on. The other test that was going on in the Garden of Eden was coming from the devil. And do you see the difference between God putting a tree in and saying, don't eat it, and what the devil did? He's going, oh, you've got to get some of this. Oh, this is so good. It's, it's kind of a drug dealer test. Get some of my stuff. Do you see the difference? He's kind of saying, you know, he's, he's kind of pulling you over into the conception bit. God never, ever does that. Never does it. He will put something in front of you that will be a test for you, but he never, ever pulls you over that line and seeks to pull you over that line to conception. probably been a little heavy but let's end on something good and the reason why we need to do this is because James does what we see I think in um, in this section of James is is the engine room for all temptations what what energizes them what makes every 
temptation so powerful? It came up at the beginning of this section and James ends with it. What was the bit, the bit at the beginning of the section? That God's to blame for me falling into temptation. What's the underlying piece in that? God is not good. God is not good. And we can see this in every temptation that God is not good. We look at the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 4 to 5, what's the serpent saying to the woman? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's holding out on you. That's what he's doing. He's not a good person. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's stopping me from having fun. He won't really come through on his promise. He's going to leave me high and dry. I have to do something about it. What if I won't be okay and he doesn't care? I don't really believe there's more pleasure in the presence of him than getting this thing in front of me. He's not actually that good. I don't believe that he's going to square the injustice up in front of me. I have to do it or it's never going to be done. He's not that good. He's not that just. He's not as trustworthy as a full bank account. He's not really that good James wants you to know and I want you to hear me God is always better than you think the most lofty amazing thought that you could ever have about God's goodness and his greatness he's better and you could come up to me and say, Pete, I've got to know that worship before. And I think God's awesome. I go, he's better. So the other day I repented to him. I said, sorry. And he forgave me. And we had a good conversation about it. And I just feel clean. God is so good. And I go, he's better. You could say that about everything. We could all get together today. And you could, everyone could say all the things about God that are so awesome. And I'd go, he's still better. And you'd get annoyed with me. Because you go, you're just an annoying person. But that's not even what it is. It's, it's God is so good and he's better than your best thought of him. You see, you know, one of our struggles is that when we get into our temptations is we think that God's like us. And this shows up in the scriptures. Psalm 50 verse 21. These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. <laughs> We think God's like us. The old saying is uh, God created us in his image and we return the favour. We create him in our image. And no wonder you take control of stuff and you fall into temptations when you think he's like you. Because it's just not going to be good enough to hold you. What does James say in verse 16 to 18? He says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights, he doesn't change like the sun and the moon change and they move. You know, James is actually saying here, he's saying he's not like you. <laughs> he doesn't shift and change and move. When he's good, he's good and he stays good. And he stays gooder than you think he is good. There's a good bit of English for you. He is consistent. He's reliable. How do I know? 
I get in the middle of temptation and it's strong. Can someone please just get me a stick of kryptonite for this temptation I've got right in front of me? Isn't that it? You get in the middle of it, it's like, oh, man, I'm fighting Superman here. Right? I'm not going to win this. It's like, just need to get a stick of kryptonite. What would that be? What would the stick of kryptonite actually be? What would be the weapon that's going to defang temptation? James 1 verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's what you need to go back to and then work from. Jesus saved us by his death on the cross. And you go, yeah, I've heard that, Peter. It's like, well, that is the most awesome news that exists for humans. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know him because he died on the cross for you. Here's, Here's the thing. There is no greater evidence of his goodness than that act. Is it? In the words of Paul, that's what I'll leave you with. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. He says, you're kryptonite people, right? This is, this is Romans 8.32, like write it on your forehead uh, in reverse print so you can see it in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, everywhere where you go where there's a mirror, you just you read it. I'm not saying that you actually do it, but you get my point. Stick a post-it note on there or something. People will think you're weird, right? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, listen to this. This is your kryptonite. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the logic? If he gave you the hardest thing and he gave it willingly, why wouldn't he help you with the rest? So Paul's going, of course he's going to help you with the rest. You can bank on it. He's good. He's better than you think.